this is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, for our News Roundup episode, we sit down to talk about the outcomes of the Democratic Socialists of America Conference and the Marxist Center Conference in Philly. We also talk about North Korean nuclear ambitions, the Foxconn factory that they want to build in Wisconsin, as well as the tragedy of Venezuela. I'm Jake, and I'm with Communist League Tampa, and also the IWW, and also the IU Caucus, and I also subscribe to the Sloth Appreciation Society on Facebook, so I'm pretty busy. Joining me tonight is Grant. Hi, Grant from Red Party. I once bought a Jacobin subscription when it was $10 off, and I was drunk at a Christmas Eve party. Rosa. I'm still here with no good introductions. Also formerly known as Pat or Patrick or whatever. Donald? Hey, it's Donald from Communist League, Tampa. Um, reading the Weekly Worker every week. <laughs> and Lexi. Hey, what up? It's Lexi having a convention. To, you know, dab Socialists of America. Fuck it. Hi. All right, then. Uh, so... Last week, there were a couple of conventions that we've been watching with some level of interest. You know, it's an interesting period right now because there was the DSA conference, the Marxist Center conference, and then the IWW conference that's coming up next month that will kind of, I think, give us some level of a picture of where the left is headed, at least for the coming political cycle. Um, let's start with DSA. So there were a number of proposals that uh, went up for discussion. Some were passed, some didn't. Uh, one of them was BDS, and I guess they voted to endorse the boycott, divest, sanction movement of Israel, which marks something of a turn in their organization compared to where they stood on Israel before, is my understanding. Yeah, they seem to have caught up to the campus activist left in thinking colonization is bad. Pretty much. That's that's how I looked at it. Because BDS isn't exactly the perfect strategy, and it seems like one of those things that... I don't want to say it's virtue signaling, but it's passed more because people yeah. like the sentiment than they actually think it's going to effectively stop Israel in any meaningful way. Yeah, it's more about the what this this the symbolism of treating the Palestinian question is not just uh, Sweden in the Middle East, as the Harrington line seems to more or less have been. Yeah, it seems like the DSA kind of had no official position, but you know there was a lot of the there were a lot of Zionists in the organization who were soft on Israel, and so this kind of basically purged them which I can't say is a bad thing. So yeah, you know, DSA is not perfect, but it purged the Zionists. 
I mean, BDS isn't perfect, and obviously neither DSA, but, you know, it purged the Zionists, and that's good. Yeah, it's, yes, it was, that's, that's good to be creating tensions with, uh, with the Democratic Party line, too. Yeah. Yeah, because he, I think even Bernie Sanders is, is uh, anti-BDS or whatever, so kind of anything that criticizes, you know, Grandpa Bernie, I think is a positive step for the organization yeah i mean that that could be a good point of tension even to inevitably uh radicalize people beyond dsa's uh positions is if the organization were to somewhat brush up against the democrats even if unsuccessfully more i have to say though it is a positive step but it's not nearly like to the extent that's needed because You know, it would be something if, say, a Bernie Sanders organization endorsed BDS, but it's kind of disappointing that they wouldn't be there already. Like, it's kind of, I mean, at least, or at least be in a political position where they were at least sympathetic or were just generally anti-Zionist. Shows you how broad socialist, you know, really is the word socialist or socialism or the concept. It has and a also. Of- yeah, that that catching up that they did with the campus left. I mean, that's what inserted itself into DSA to some extent. So it would make sense that that turn won't come until they get an injection of youth into the organization. Yeah. And when uh, admittedly to, for the, to their credit, to, uh, youth that is a rank and file more willing to step out of line with the Harringtonites. Maybe not enough, but willing to. I saw this article where they were interviewing all of the old timers in the organization. <laughs> and it was kind of interesting. Most of them seemed obviously very enthused about what was happening, even if they didn't always agree with the politics of the people who were coming in. Uh, one of them was, one of them actually remarked, no matter what happens, like this is better because I've been to DSA conferences that we could have had in the restroom. Oops. Yeah. So, I mean, because I think at this point, like a big, I just kind of did like a search on Google News just trying to see what outside the ultra left uh, news outlets were saying about it. And the big thing that DSA probably put forward in press releases and that people seem to pick up on was 25,000 people, 25,000 people. And this is their biggest conference ever. And the big, and the big, the big tagline thing that they put forward is we're the biggest socialist organization in America since world war two. So what do we make of that? Is, is there something to that? Is there, is that something worth celebrating or I don't know. What do you guys make of that? I mean, I think it would, it's in a country where we don't even have trade union consciousness, basically. I think that anything that's somewhat more to the left is going to be, you know, it's, it's not something that we should just, you know, reject and act like, you know, we're too good for, you know, any kind of left movement at this point, I'm going to take, even if I don't agree with it completely, I'm still, you know, I don't see the point in just, you know, being a complete negative you know, cynic about it and not at least recognizing that it's, you know, it's something. It's not the real movement to abolish the present state of things, but it's something. It would be nice to know how much of those are paper members and how much of those are like, you know, 
newer members or get some kind of breakdown because DSA has sort of been, you know, a model organization for a certain type of membership that doesn't necessarily require a lot of participation and for whatever benefits that may have. Um, well, it's my understanding that a lot of those are new recruits because it's the size of the organization has apparently grown exponentially in like the last right. year well, or then, so. Then but how, how can you argue with that, right? The challenge, the challenge with that though <laughs> is how long will they stay? Because easy, they met like people who were in the organization that have pointed this out, easy come, easy go. If it's easy to sign up, it's easy to fall out of it too, which is why some people have been pushing for a uh, more firm dues structure, but that didn't seem to, uh, that didn't seem to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also, you know, they just got out of this big spike in membership. So now they have all these resources, you know, both in terms of, you know, members that can volunteer time and money that they've saved up over time. So now, you know, they can actually do stuff, you know, that can actually like launch serious campaigns. You know, they could actually run their own candidates. They could actually get seriously involved in union organizing on a pretty large scale. Well, and I mean, so it's, it's tough to say. One thing I wanted to talk about, there's a, was one amendment that was put forward regarding their relationship with the DSA to the Democratic Party. And for me, this was the most interesting thing about this conference. Not this amendment specifically, but what it might say about their relationship to the Democrats, which has for so long kind of defined their place on the left in a way. So I'm just going to read a little bit from an article in Slate um, called Democratic Socialists Need to Get Along with the Democrats, But for How Long? And it, it discusses an amendment put forward. Uh, it says, one of the proposed amendments called for the DSA to remain cognizant of, quote, their fight against the leadership of the Democratic Party and its neoliberal and austerity politics and argue that the organization should criticize progressive groups for involving themselves in intra-democratic party battles, like the contest between Keith Ellison and Tom Perez for the DNC chair. During its introduction, the amendment's co-author, Dan Labotz, said that, well, quote, we will be working with progressive Democrats and progressive Democratic organizations. The progressive Democrats are our competitors in the arena of ideas. They are people who believe that the capitalist system can be reformed. They accept the capitalist system. His co-author, Zelig Stern, seconded him, quote, this is an organization that belongs to our enemy, to the en our enemies in the capitalist class, he said of the Democratic Party. I'm not advocating that we do not support Democrats or that we do not run the Democratic Party line. We should, uh, or run on the Democratic Party line. We should. There's a difference between the ballot line, which we can take over hostily and try to take control of the apparatus, which belongs to them, end quote. So this amendment failed and it failed by about 60 to 40 percent of the delegates in the room. And I feel like that, that, which is a pretty modest statement, really, it doesn't even say go against the Democratic Party generally. It simply said to fight against um, the leadership of it and their neoliberal and austerity politics. Yeah. And, even, and the sponsors of it or the authors of it even explicitly say, like, we should, uh, we should run on the Democratic Party line and that we should just try and take over the ballot line, but not the apparatus of the organization, which to me sounds fucking insane. But that basically yeah. did not even pass uh, the that, convention. That says something about kind of where they are politically. Yeah, that ballot line thing is sort of the uh, left caucus, you know, kind of asterisk to how the, their dealings with the Democratic Party are different than the Harringtonites. But even in that painfully kind of, you know, weakened form, they're not able to get that through. I find that telling, even with all the new membership, 
you know, it's a 60-40 split. Yeah, and there, there ultimately was not a total break with the Democrats, obviously, in this convention. So you could say with, you know, taking up an anti-Zionist stance and, you know, there's another resolution they passed, I think, that was... Uh, leaving oh, yeah, they left the Socialist that. International. So I guess, you know, that's a little... It's a movement to the left, but it's still not left enough, obviously. But I don't know. At the same time, you know... We don't have to even have trade union consciousness here, so anything that's a little bit to the left is good, I guess. Well, yeah, I get it. Um, but one thing that, because I mean, this has been my concern all along, is that, you know, if there's no clear brick with the Democratic Party, it's just going to lead to disaffection. And it's going to go nowhere. And they're just going to end up right where they started. And we're going to end up right where we started. Because yeah. if. I think the problem is there There are real material reasons, there are real practical reasons why it's difficult to work with Democrats. Because if you compete within the Democratic Party, that doesn't necessarily shield you from having to compete with the Democratic Party apparatus. Right? They're going to undercut you at every turn because it's basically the Democrats' structural job to fight the left. And, you know paying lip service to their organization doesn't really do you any favors in the long term because I mean, look what happened with Bernie Sanders, for instance. I mean, how, how much longer are you going to like kowtow to this organization? I mean, how, how much longer can you stand before the working class, like uh, carrying water for this shitty decrepit apparatus that continually turns around and fucks you over? Yeah. It's not like Sanders got a sweetened deal for selling out. I mean, he, the national, apparatus still fucking hates him yeah he was he was basically screwed over by the dnc for trying to work within the party and that sort of thing like the usual excuse that they give for doing this is because he wasn't really a member of the democratic party he just sort of like got into the primaries without being in the party really but it's more about his politics when you actually look at it because he was to the left of Hillary and that's even in his like weak sauce social democratic way, he was to the left of Hillary and was generally a threat to the party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A threat to the party maybe, status quo. Maybe he can still win. Yeah, maybe he can still win. <laughs> Here's how Bernie can and, still win. But there is also, I think, a lot of, you know, DSA itself, admittedly, a lot of the recent success is due to Bernie Sanders. And so a lot of these people joining DSA are looking at socialism through the Bernie Sanders lens, which is really, you know, not the best kind of socialism, as we all know. Same time. Sure. But so it's, it's really going to be dependent on the, the Marxists within the DSA to, to, you know, to educate these new members and really... Um, you know, it's, it's going to be up to them. I mean, what they're really going to have to do is pivot towards base building because like smaller level candidates are not going to be able to raise the kind of money that Bernie Sanders did. Sanders, due to a kind of weird historical accident, was able to commandeer a national platform for what he was doing and raise a fuck ton of money. But does anybody really give a shit for who's running for city council or who's running for some state senate seat where they live? No, 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 no you never, you never state. hear about that shit. You never hear about that shit. And that's what like Democratic or party Republican parties are for: is to grease the wheels on the, that kind of political machinery and get money to people 
who are you know fighting at these at these like two bit levels. Well, if they find out that you know some social if the party you know apparatchiks or whatever find out that there's down level people running around talking about single payer healthcare and socialism and shit like that, I seriously doubt that they're just going to sit on their hands while that's going on and give those people the same kind of resources that they would give some be whatever you know yeah they're uh, probably going to try and make an example of like the fewer one the few ones that actually get really successful like they're going to make an example of them just like they did with upton sinclair when he ran in the democratic party like they they funded like a third party candidate to screw him over when he ran for governor of california and won the democratic nomination yeah, exactly. I mean, they're, they'll they'll always be able to undercut you like that. Well, to go back to the claim though that it's going to take base building for a DSA to go in, I think that's kind of what the Praxis Caucus or that group Praxis. I'm not sure if it's really a caucus or just a faction or just a, kind of like a blog of members, but um, you know, their kind of idea is you know focusing on doing anti-police work you know, organizing, you know, tenants, organizing unions. One of the guys who's active is R.L. Stevens, who is um, a union organizer, who seems like he actually does know how to organize workers. So, you know, I think that's kind of where the hope in the essay lies, is like within that general caucus. Because if you're going to have any kind of electoral success, it's going to have to be based off of already having some kind of base that they can draw from. Yeah, and you know, other if they, if they don't do that, then they're only going to be able to use a Democratic Party to run candidates, basically. So they have to do the necessary kind of base building work before they can actually run their own candidates. Yeah, and they'll just be floating like floating with this like rotting mainstream political base, like people that can still hold their nose and vote for the Democrats for you know some uh, antiquarian socialist reason are are, are still kind of politically engaged in some way whereas like a base building a real base building strategy can engage a lot of people that basically have no voice so we could segue here there was another conference going on pretty much concurrently with the dsa one um, it was the marxist center conference put together i think mainly by philly socialists it sounds like from what they were doing it was mostly just kind of talking shop between different groups that are engaged in highly localized base building. There was talk about the idea of setting up a provisional or preliminary points of unity, but nothing really came out of that. Did anyone have any thoughts on this particular effort or? Well, just to continue the... We may want, we may want to give listeners a little bit of background on Marxist Center, just in case not everyone knows. Yeah, that's a good idea. Would someone care to explain it? <laughs> yeah, who 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 feels most qualified to do that? I feel Donald, since you were originally on the admin team for uh, oh, God. a coordinating group. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> not, can we just not talk about that? <laughs> uh, oh. I mean, the Marxist stuff Center. Is the fun part. <laughs> Marxist Center started out kind of um, as a collaborative group between Philly Socialists, Communist Labor Party, Red Party, and CLT. But then it kind of, I don't know, that kind of collapsed and it became a bunch of different groups that were um, 
interested really dominant yeah. interested in base I mean, building kind of, it. and also kind of interest in the project because of just i don't know there were a lot of stalinists involved in the project and and we started like talking shit on stalin and mao and people got butt hurt and then people got that people who are kind of people who are kind of in the middle here's what sketched me out about this here's what sketched me out about this people in the, who are in the middle who are reasonable people many of whom i respect got mad at us because we were being divisive, in quote, by by having like I think fairly reasonable debate about the histo- the historical legacy of Stalin, yeah, and yeah, and I guess that this Marxist center tendency, we really don't want to get caught up in those kind of debates. But I really I don't think you can avoid those debates. Like I've always said, like most of the time, if you ask some you know regular person about communism, the first thing they're going to bring up is like Lenin or Stalin or some old dead Russian dude, you know. So it's, it's just I'm not inevitable that we're going to have to have that I conversation. I don't think yeah, like a, a left organization needs to have some kind of like purified, you know, program before it can do anything. I for on for purposes of base building and shit like that, I'd be perfectly fine working with Stalinists and Maoists. That is. Oh yeah, that's unless, just United. unless you want you get butt hurt and throw a hissy fit. Exactly, every that's single a condition time that you confront is you have to be allowed yeah. to criticize the other people's positions. Yeah. Well, of course. I yeah, mean, the thing you know. is, the the reason I, I I think one of the things that makes organizing with Stalinists and so on such a sticking point that you know it should at very least be a up for discussion and not this sort of don't ask, don't tell policy on actually existing socialism that Marxist centers have. Don't ask, don't tank. Yeah. Um, don't ask, can tank. Yeah. Genu- I mean, genuinely. We all kind of have different opinions on, you know, yeah, no, what it's, it the seems... union was and when it was progressive and when it was not. And, you know. But if I can just, if I can just say. I kind of agree that's not a model to work on. It seems that most, um, Sorry, I just I totally lost it. We'll cut that, I guess. It's all good. Well, it, yeah. It yeah. seems like, you know, I they can understand base- like the utility of not wanting to talk about it because it does, you know, become this big divisive thing, but I think that- I don't th- the thing is I don't think it's really divide Okay. They make yeah. it out to be this divisive thing and they, you know, they'll say um that it's it's sort of I don't know who is actually having a divisive opinion besides the already converted on the left about about Stalin. You know, what I mean, it, it, <laughs> I don't you know, we can definitely say um, when I brought up that I thought that they should have a more explicit kind of thing on this. Uh, there was a tendency of, oh, that's like antiquarian sort of leftist stuff to talk about. And if you're going to just get bogged down in debates about dead Russian guys, something, 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 nobody's going to care. Sort of throwing a bit of a workerist kind of populist spin on on not wanting to talk about it. But, but when do you ever talk, walk up to a, a, an apolitical person who hasn't talked much about communism and say, like, hey, yeah, fuck Chairman Mao. And they go and they get really offended. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that doesn't make sense at all. Antiquarian, who's the fucking Stalinist here? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> exactly. well, if you're gonna carry water for you know dead dictators, like in public, in a time when there's um, an expanding executive bourgeois state 
crushing democracy, crushing the ability to have like, like humanity and like community, like you're, you're really going to defend all this, you know, energetic uh, uh, state action and jackboots and shit. Like that's the, that's the socialist politic you want to have. Like I, I genuinely think that we can't really be friendly or I mean, we, I could be friendly like, with people, but like openly, like politically, you can't associate with people who are comfortable with that. That's Khrushchev disturbing. lied, man. Yeah. Khrushchev lied. It's just disturbing. Uh, yeah. But it's kind of has yeah. become just a discussion on Stalinism in general and its relation. Yeah. But anyway, the Marxist center group, they kind of just want to focus on building a base through a community organizing efforts and serve the people style programs and things like that. And basically build groups around strategies of base building and then from there developing a program, basically. And that was another point where we were, you know, the Communist League was in disagreement with a lot of people there. Is that we were saying, no, you kind of have to start with a program and then unify a group from there. Because some of it some of it bleeds into like mass line stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of the groups vary into the Maoist mass line strategy, yeah. even if they're not Maoist personally. So, uh, you know, I respect a lot of people who organize this conference, but I guess it's just not my politics, but I'm still glad it happened. Yeah, they basically want to hide their, their like, weird tanky politics behind, like, activism and never really talk about what they mean by socialism and that sort of thing. Because as those historical questions are basically about what they mean by socialism and that sort of thing, do we mean, like, you know a developing dictatorship of the proletariat with a lower stage of communism that develops from that and a higher stage so on or do we mean like these weird sort of bureaucratic collectivist godless hellholes yes and obviously it's not it's not one to one but there is and this is what i was going to articulate before that i sort of lost track of there is a um correlation between the way you would sort of want things to go after the revolution so to speak and the way you might organize i mean we've all experienced Mm -hmm. internally in the left the sort of future commissars and so on that sometimes populate positions of power within leftist organizations and i think that it's a struggle even in a organization that claims democratic accountability and and so on to keep leadership accountable that's something that is always going to be a struggle that that the proletariat sort of has to wage to do it in an organization where some people are okay with embracing a legacy that involves killing your political opponents yeah i mean that's absurd and by political opponents i mean you know the guy on the think of stalinist stuff yeah the the guy who's in your own party who's in the opposing faction who, you know, criticizes your um, insane grain collectivization policies, like, you know, purging, like, mass amounts of other communists, not just, like, you know, killing reactionaries. Who's, whose positions you'll eventually end up taking anyways. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's interesting how uh, the version of Marxist center that's being talked about is sort of um, comes out of Hal Draper and uh, and there's a slight difference between the way Mike McNair uses it, even though Mike McNair is highly influenced by Hal Draper. Hal Draper is more talking about a center as like the, how the, the communist party is the center of, of um, a workers movement or something like that. 
uh, or a socialist movement rather. And how yeah. does Mike McNair use it? Well, Mike McNair has that communist political spectrum where left communists uh, don't get involved with um, elections or trade unions because they're inherently bourgeois and right-wing communists, you know, throw their weight in with uh, the progressive bourgeoisie as their main strategy. And you have a kind of center splitting the difference between both of them, not wanting to be abstentionists, but also not wanting to be bourgeois coalitionists. Um, and so that that's a much more like specific kind yeah, of centrism. Uh, and that, that, ends, yeah, with centrism the, um, like the that ends with the conclusion of uh, principled programmatic unity. And maybe we can't have principled programmatic unity in a situation like this, but at the very least, uh, we should not be angling for defense of dictators <laughs> in a situation so fundamentally anti-political as, as we're in. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not even, you know, it's, it's not like everyone in the party has to have the same position on when the Russian revolution degenerated, you know, and what the right. best, you know, way to go was and all these like very precise things. But at the same time, you can still have a general, you know, point of unity where you all agree that, you know, Stalinism or whatever type of society that was is not the kind of society we want to live in. And that's not what we're aiming. That's not what we mean by socialism. I think that can be a basic. Just just denounce barracks communism. It's simple. I mean, we have. Yeah, exactly. Like there's a Marx quote that you can even use to to denounce barracks communism. Well, it sounds yeah. like there were overtures towards putting together points of unity in the thing, but it doesn't sound like anything came out of it. But who knows? Maybe down the road, we'll see. Yeah, I and mean, I'm I'm interested in how it will end up. I I was hoping we could get someone who attended on here to talk about it. I think we pissed too. I think we pissed too many people off. Oh God! Total crickets. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was like, look how nice we were at the DSA. I promise it won't be a firing squad. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. We we are probably closer, you know, closer to that group or group of groups politically than say DSA. I'd say. Oh, for sure. I mean, Marx is Marx is something. There's some good base. I mean, some of the base building stuff they're doing is is pretty good. Um, yeah. I just wonder about the kind of political education and internal democracy they're having if this is the online presence. Yeah, one of the major problems that we have right now is we don't really have much proletarian involvement to like regulate the bureaucrats and that sort of thing so we're basically we don't, just we don't have mass organizations we don't have mass organizations that's why yeah we basically well, yeah, don't have I mean, like we don't have masses to rally against like bureaucrats and want to be dictators dsa they almost have that situation because you had the the guy who was a former cop organizer get elected to a position and he hid his um history from his electoral like platform and whatnot, so people didn't know about it. People found that around. Now there's a lot of people in DSA trying to push him out. So we're, you know, I think there are, you know, that that does that dynamic is occurring in the left. I think. I mean, it's a dynamic that occurs, but I I think that DSA, you know, as a microcosm, can only tell us so much there because the the that broader problem. Uh, is still present of not having that social basis, that that strong uh, social basis uh, of a substantive labor movement. And that, I think that's where the subculture problem comes from and, and things of that nature is this um, 
this you need a a I said it the other day you can't artificially craft a decent proletarian culture or or internal culture out of this this sort of social basis of the student activist strata because intellectuals as Lenin said they think they're the brain of the nation but they're it's shit that sort of reflection of collected waste you know more a reflection than the drive of uh intellectual thought and so you that separation between the two of of workers and and intellectuals i think is is something that really uh i don't know even even for an organic sort of proletarian intellectual there's a certain alienation that comes with that and bridging the gap is is and uh so on is is really a vital question right now well yeah. you look at you have to look at the gap you can also look at this gap you're talking about in a more practical way in that you have to build an organization that is not primarily made up or at least dominantly controlled by activists working on that organization. And, but the problem is like you get with smaller organizations, you get this cycle where you, the organization is very resource poor. So you have to rely on people's free labor or free volunteer labor to make the organization run in a bare minimum way. But because, and because it's not like, and because of that, because you have, it's, it so runs on the fuel of activists, free labor, those activists are able to have a disproportionate amount of say in how it's run because in a sense they kind of own it because they're the thing that makes it work. But what you want to do is you want to get to a point where you have a true mass organization where the people who are like the activists are like a minority in the organization and are thus subordinated to the majority of people who have regular ass jobs and lives and who make sure that the people working are representing their interests. But you have to get to that point where there's so many people they can actually fund a thing where the organization, you know, at least administratively and in the day-to-day -day activity consists of, you know, minority activists, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's why something like the DSA is important, that emergent factor. And um, I don't know, Draper has some good stuff on Marx's position on sects and how he was more or less opposed to the sect forum, but... Um, but encourage people to work in whatever was alive and spread communist ideas that way. Um, there's definitely more specificity later on in Marx, but I don't know. I think there's some wisdom to that. And I'm yeah. still a little too much of a purist um, to think of my precious dollars going to Democratic Party uh, campaign funds through DSA dues. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, well, my thing is more. I think it's more practical. Like, I just I have too much shit going on already. And I don't see like, for me at least. Like, DSA has not crossed the threshold, or it's enough for me to like drop the other things I'm working on to run to this thing. That's true. You know, just threshold for fucking me. job. <laughs> yeah, I I kind of regret joining the DSA, sort of because it's like the DSA in Chicago is divided into like two branches. Like one specifically filled with like old Bernie people. That's the one that I'm near. And the other one that's actually in Chicago that has like all the decent people, at least like the younger crowd, the younger, more radical crowd. And yeah. It's, you should try to get on their Slack or something. I, I didn't think of that. 
happen. <laughs> yeah, just try to get in contact with them and try to switch your affiliation and try to, I don't know, maybe they can help you uh, take over the Bernie branch or some shit and, and fill it with uh, uh, Swampside uh, people who hail to Donald. Uh, no hailing to Donald. That's that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, we're starting a cold person. That's what they're that's what they're Donald. doing in the IWW too, right? Just uh saluting pictures of Donald. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, because of um, front group. I heard the that's IWW that's, that's is a front actually group. what someone said, kind of actually. But anyway, IWW oh, is a CLT front. The, the whole oh god, that one was the worst. But it's a CLT front that actually is um answered the bull to Donald Parkinson. <laughs> That's the most ridiculous thing that someone said. But anyway, you're foot soldiers, you and George Soros. Let's 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 talk about Venezuela. Okay. Well, actually, I'm part of uh, Putin's COINTELPRO operation with Trump. Nice. How's I that wish going? I get paid Trump dollars it, and Russian dollars. I was I, trying to transition us to the IWW conference. That's where I, th- I thought that was the smooth sort of. Well, it hasn't <laughs> happened yet. The IWW conference. Why? Why by exposing our secret plan to ruin the IWW? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're actually being funded by Putin to bureaucratize <laughs> the IWW so he can take it over. It's yeah. part of it's part of Putin's eighty-five step three-dimensional chess plan to re- return Soviet communism to the world. So, <laughs> anyway. Step one is stopping the IWW from uh, anarchist perfection. We, yeah, we, 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 we want to throw out the West Coast anarchist bummery. That's really what we want to do. We want to bring back, <laughs> back Daily On Thought. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to bring the IWW back to Daily On style. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're resurrecting. Yeah. We're bringing us. Um, never mind. Yeah, we're gonna. Yeah, we're gonna. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna I, I got us off road. track though. Venezuela. <laughs> Venezuela. Venezuela. Oh, I mean, I'm gonna say this: the people who support the rioters, but are like, oh, but I don't support the opposition, are just being stupid. Because you remember in Euro in Ukraine with the Euromaidan thing, you know, you had these riots against the state, and it was really, you know, right wing political movement. But you know, people. Like anarchists were all about it because you had people rioting and like fighting cops and stuff. It seems the same way. Like some of the people who kind of support the opposition in Venezuela have the same kind of like view on it. Like because in Bakunin, there's kind of like this idea that like any kind of uprising against the state, even if it's reactionary, the anarchists should still like participate and try to drive it in like an anarchist direction. Hey, Pinochet probably broke some stuff during that coup, right? Riot. I mean, I mean, Pinochet was basically a part of Black Block. <laughs> True facts. <laughs> oh shit! Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dude, we we can't hear any of this, can we? <laughs> At least this section. I don't know. No, but seriously, like the whole idea that you know you can support the rioters but not the opposition just seems really naive to me. But at the same time, like uh, it's, well, it's, it's a like, completely fucked government. Isn't this a like, lot of there's really nothing good that's going to come out of this? But some of that is food riots, though. I mean, I feel like if yeah. you're rioting for food, like yeah. that's probably a legitimate riot if you need some food. Well, ri- riots are really heterogeneous, and uh, there are going to be people that are probably you know worth supporting in those riots, even if the overall character of the riot is you know in- includes a lot of. Uh, 
bourgeoisie that would like to see some kind of reinstated thing. I mean, I really don't know. I, I I'm I'm not going to sit there yeah, and I take the, the propaganda of the government like at face value. I don't, um, I don't speak Spanish, so I don't feel super like qualified to talk about this. But yeah. I want to push back on this thing Donald said a little bit because it's like, you know, I mean, we're not talking about like a bunch of like campus bros like rioting because either their football team won or like their molesting football coach got fired like we're talking about like a country that's like literally where people don't like their caloric intake has dropped by like 19 pounds on average like like people are there there are probably people starving there i feel like in a situation like i mean yeah there probably are some you know like shitheads you know who want who used to benefited under the old system and don't like Chavez and they're out in the streets. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying there's like no that. poor people rioting. I'm just saying that they're dupes of the right opposition. Well, they're also dupes like of like wanting some food. <laughs> but they're still being duped by a corrupt, you know, cause that's just going to make, you know, things worse if they actually get yeah, in. I, I, I don't, like, I don't, I don't think that just because it's, you know, people doing direct action in response to repression that it's necessarily a good thing. Yeah, we we all know what's going to happen, and like look at opposition. Well, yeah, no, the, yeah, yeah, obviously the, the, they have. The, that's the problem, though. They have no organized opposition that defends their interests, or if they do, it's like a minority and like the broader coalition that's basically just people wanting a bourgeois restoration or whatever. I get exactly. that. Exactly. Which is that. why I would do what the Bordigists are doing and go into the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 excuse me, the Bordigas went to the jungles? Yes, there's actually two Venezuelan Bordigas and they are hiding in the jungle. Every class struggle is a political struggle, said Marx. A struggle which limits itself to obtaining a new distribution of economic gains is not yet a political struggle because it is not directed against the social structure of the production relations. The disruption of the relations of production peculiar to a particular social epoch and the overthrow of the rule of a certain social class is the result of a long and often fluctuating political struggle. The key to this struggle is the question of the state. The problem of who has power? Lenin. I do need some documentation on um, this. Talk to uh, uh, there's we, there's an Italian left com dude who told me about this. We need to contact actually the, the latest um, ask them the latest what's going on. The latest ICP newspaper is actually about Venezuela. We actually do have two members there who are like in hiding. So I mean, what I'm saying is like. Look, I'll take another example. You have the, you know, the riots in the Ukraine. A lot of the people who were probably rioting were rioting for legitimate, just reasons, for just, you know, causes like against corruption of the government and whatnot. But, but in the end, all of that rioting served the reactionary cause, and you know, the creation of a neoliberal government. And so, in the same way, in Venezuela, 
I don't think we should be like fetishizing these riots like some anarchists are doing. Yeah, it's well, a really no, it's a tragic, dumb... it's a sad situation. I'm not saying we should be like cheering on the riot police, but I look at this very similar to how I'd look at the decline of the Soviet Union. Like, yes, that was a moribund system that had like a lot of things wrong with it, but the collapse itself was just a way for capital to, you know, destroy you know, the, the living standards of a lot of people and privatize a lot of shit and, you know, the shock treatment that went down was just very bad. And it's a I don't tragic see- situation. I mean. Yeah, it's an absolutely yeah. tragic situation. Michael Roberts said a great blog about just how severe the collapse of the economy in Venezuela is. And I think that, uh, you know, there, there, there may be a lot of truth to what you're saying, Donald, but when things uh, collapse to that degree, um, I think... Yeah, the Marxian impulse has to include, you know, not condemning people for rioting for, for, uh, because they have no food. Like, and regardless of whether they're, you know, being pawns in the machine of, of, uh, the Venezuelan, uh, bourgeois opposition. Like, I, I, I hear what you're saying functionally and politically, you know, it's true. There's really no other way it could develop. Um, but is that, is that true though? Because separation. I mean, I, I know what that's because I know. Of- it's sort of a weird workers workerist line to just sort of half-heartedly endorse it because it's the workers doing it and they're doing it because oh they're in a piss poor situation. Like there were race riots like er- during the early labor movement there were massive race riots that involved workers and they were doing it because oh they were getting screwed over like they were losing their jobs to x y and z and he- yeah, but that's an attack on, you a, can't on a section support. of the proletariat, not on the state. There have been like, yeah, attacks but... on Chavistas and stuff. Like, there have been attacks on you know, people who support Chavez and you know, poor people especially. So it's... You oh, know, right. It's, yeah, I yeah mean, the... that, that, those, are, those are attacks on, like, especially on poor people, attacks on the proletariat. And if it's, if it's outright attacks on political supporters, then it's getting close to, you know some kind of fascism in opposition. Sure. I mean, I guess also I have a similar view on Solid Arsnock in Poland. Like, I generally think it was, you know, CIA socialism. I obviously started out as something that had some promising aspects, but I think that people overlooked, you know, how people kind of, and still today, overlook how easy it became a bourgeois opposition in a way to basically capitalism and traditionalism to Poland. Yeah, that's and I, undoubtedly if true. If opposition wins in Venezuela, I think we are going to see like a very intense like austerity against the working class. I mean, we're seeing some of it already because they're they're like right now the Venezuelan government is paying. They're they've been the only reason they've been one of the reasons. Well, two of the reasons they've been, they've been able to remain solvent is because they're yeah oil revenues are basically tied to their loans. So, so they've, they're still taking out loans. Like private capital is still lending that government money. And they've been very rigid about paying them off. Like they've, they've paid, they've been all of their payments consistently, even in spite of all, all of this. And, but because of that, there's also loss of services going on uh, to uh, on the part of the government. So because they're basically committed to honoring these debts that they've been able to remain solvent, but you know, working class people are seeing cuts as a result of that as well already, yeah. even, even in absence of a, a end of Chavismo. I mean, yeah, either way, the government is going to have to, you know, implement austerity in some way 
right because of the international situation the international economic situation well, so that, the, the government decided not to allow this to unfold with the democratic norms it has and you know this is not a socialist state or a proletarian state no matter how many fucking you know little town halls it tries to set up oh yeah i mean it is it is a bourgeois state so I mean, in, a, in a bourgeois state it's better to you know keep these democratic norms together and unfortunately uh maduro played into the hands of the reactionaries by holding on to power like this well yeah he's basically I mean, that's the thing is he's pivoted his, his base of support from any semblance of being of having like a base in the favelas to basically just relying on the military to hold it together that that was a huge mistake uh, venezuela even though it was like this you know chavismo kind of dictatorship in a way like some kind of populist thing it actually had you know pretty decent democratic institutions relatively speaking i mean you know especially sitting here from the united states it had pretty clean elections um jimmy carter you know would go on democracy now or some shit. i don't know if he was ever on democracy now but anyway that it was it was like you know well known that they had like relatively consensual institutions for for what it was which you know yeah and um that what whatever redeemable part of that legacy is totally gone and the the right is emboldened um i mean yeah but it's it's a general tendency of like bourgeois states to like grasp onto power when they're threatened like it, even even in like the best bourgeois states this has happened like lincoln like suspended habeas corpus during the civil war that sort of thing but we're talking about a pivot in terms of like his the real like the obviously like the military was always like a major part of chavismo and their control over the government but now it's like that's like it's been leaned down to where that's like the essential thing now and that's really almost all he's really interested in appeasing at this point I mean, he does have a base of support still. It's just keeping that base of support subsisting, basically. And the fear is that if austerity measures are put into place, that base, you know, a lot of these price controls that are keeping people fed basically at subsistence levels, perhaps, but still keeping them fed will go away and, you know, they won't have food. <laughs> so it's it's a very difficult situation, like I well, said. Yeah, but I mean, the problem is they're also going to experience, they're also like experiencing hyperinflation. Um, I mean, yeah. if you look at like the Roberts piece, it becomes clear like just how like grim economically it is. But one, one question, like what maybe like ancillary question to this is, could this have been avoided? Because I know at the end of the Roberts piece, he suggests that they, if they, instead of redistributing the oil wealth almost directly, yeah. mostly into aid programs, if they had reinvested in the economy and tried to basically right. diversify their exports, that this might have actually I mean, prevented. Yeah, that's pretty much what everyone says. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. That's, that's, well, that's probably correct. Norwegian model. And, but also, um, but I've also heard some. I, I saw another person arguing that you know the the capitalist state is basically a firm on the world market, and so it's pretty much impossible to have socialism in any country. Um, but there seem to be. Oh yeah, I mean that's the McNearite argument. The argument is, you know, like could it have been a better capitalism? And that's yeah, right. That's it could have. Question. Like, it could yeah, have been a better capitalism. No, they could have done better yeah. investments, and yeah, they could have had something. I'm sorry. Um, this could have something approaching Scandinavian social democracy, f at least for the for the standards that you know Venezuelans were used to. I mean, that's was a possibility. Yeah. It's happen now. Like there's example of pink tide nations that have done way better than Ven 
Venezuela in terms of, like, handling this sort of thing, I guess. Like, if basically it all comes down to, like, not basing their entire economy on oil. Like, if they literally had done that, like, diversified in terms of that sort of thing, then they would have been, like, relatively well off now. Yeah, there was not the political will for that. So North Korea, what's what's uh, what's happening in uh, in the Hermit Kingdom? Did Trump threaten to nuke them? Yeah, he um, said he was going to rain fury on them. It's it's pretty fucking scary to be honest. He's been watching Game of Thrones. He's been watching Game of Thrones. Says it this yeah, episode. I mean it's it is it, when you know, it's it's like this happens all the time, but like I don't know. It seems like it's just too. It's more intense than usual this time. Well, apparently when he was actually briefed about like nuclear weapons and that sort of thing, he kept on asking why he couldn't just use the nukes. <laughs> yeah. Because, um, we, because we, when we give you the button, it won't be the real button, Donald. It's going to be the fake button. <laughs> we're, not, we're not we're not giving you those codes okay yeah you don't actually get the button donald that's just a myth we make up when the, when, the, when the nuclear codes were eight six seven five three oh nine you should have taken the hint okay yeah i i, I don't know uh yeah it, it, it appeared that donald trump actually threatened to nuke the north koreans and that north korea threatened to attack guam they said that they had a plan that they were they could unroll in i don't know it was like 90 days or something here's what's um, happening yeah. Trump has basically realized, consciously or not, that this is an intractable situation because Bush and Clinton both gave uh, North Korea aid in exchange for them ending their nuclear program. Well, of course, North Korea, North Korea never ended their nuclear program. They just did it on the sly because we don't really know what they're doing over there because our intelligence center is actually kind of iffy because they're so isolated. So he realized that they're pretty probably – on some level, he has to know that they're going to build this nuke anyway, which puts him between a rock and a hard place because he did all this tough talk about how I'm never going to let it happen because I do good deals and I'm great. So now he's trying to like walk this line where he can kind of save face in public and still let this still have this thing kind of happen. So I don't know. I don't think he really even knows what he's doing, but I think that's where a lot of this um, this agitation has come from. I think it's also come from the fact that he's slipping in the polls. He's not delivering the American restoration that he promised because he's not as good as he thinks he is. And Congress is a shit show that even, you know, experienced politicians couldn't manage or work with. So it's I th we're probably going to see a lot more bluster from him as he tries to find a way to create excuses for his own increasingly inept and impotent performance in the White House. Yeah. He can't even manage the executive powers correctly. Like, Obama was pretty much a master in terms of, like, getting shit past, like, the whole fucking um, legislative branch and judicial branch just by going through, like, executive bullshit, like, ex um, like executive orders and et cetera. That, that sort of thing. But, but Trump has been, like, not able to like really do that particularly well like initially like his first immigration plan was basically like written on fucking toilet paper like that's the kind of quality that it was well, yeah he's got just, like people like bannon from breitbart and like you know advising him yeah and he basically sabotaged it 
sabotaged it by going on Twitter calling it a fucking Muslim ban. So, yeah. It's just like, he keeps on repeating, repeating, like just fucking repeatingly shooting himself in the foot and just in public. And the Democrats are not going to be able to take advantage. (laughs) They're not going to be able to take advantage at all. Do we really think that just to pivot back to North Korea. So Trump um, put a fresh round of sanctions on what, what was it? Russia, Iran, and North Korea. I think this is in part due to the, uh, you know, zombie cold war hysteria around, uh, you know, Putin's puppet. Um, But how tough talking is Trump, is Trump being here? Does any of us actually think that he might actually go to war with North Korea? Because, you know, I want to say, nah, there's no way that could happen. If anybody would do it, you know, China would get them in line because China's kind of sick of their shit. Um, but I think well, I here's, what we, here's, here's the thing. You think he'd do it? In the United States, the United States and, have, and North Korea have two things in common. The military bureaucracy basically runs the government. So we really need to be thinking about what does our military bureaucracy want and what does their military bureaucracy want? Well, I know what their military bureaucracy wants to 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 stay in power. Yeah, which is what ours wants, and so nobody wants this war. I don't think. I right. think this is. I think this is really just Donald Trump putting on a song and dance in public to try and obscure the fact that he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, and that he's oh, probably. I, hope that, so. I really hope so. And the new the, he 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 must know the new the Korean like I'm sure the generals have told him the North Koreans are going to build this nuke, but. You know, because he promised and made a big thing about how it would never happen under his watch, he has to like find a way to weasel his way out of this essentially without necessarily invading yeah. their country. I mean, I don't know. I think he could like go go all the way and invade the country. Like they don't have warheads yet. They can't reach us specifically. And their whole they their can just strategy. Yeah, that's what they're planning to do. They're planning to artillery strike Seoul until it's gone before and like causing North Korea, uh, I mean South Korea, to surrender before the United States can step in. But if yeah, if Seoul happen. can like, what do you mean? Uh, what do you mean it's not going to happen? Oh my God! Uh, in that situation, the United States might actually use some of its intercontinental ballistic missiles. Well, that's the thing. Well, I mean, I mean, but and if if North Korea did that. Like no way, Donald Trump gets reelected. Like it's, it would be the biggest foreign policy blunder. I guess Iraq, he did get reelected on Iraq, but no, that's the thing. He got reelected on Iraq, and and if uh, North Korea actually did commit some kind of active aggression, see, that's the thing. I have I have trouble imagining North Korea actually carrying out the act of aggression that would make Donald Trump look at all good for go for invading North Korea. Yeah, I think that North Korea realizes that if they do that, they're fucking a frying pan. Like we're they're just fried. I mean, yeah. but do we? They, do I mean, they do have Trump a military strategy prepared for Korean War too. It's yeah. not a great one, but it's something. It's it's there. It's based on it's based on the idea of we don't have the force to take over by conventional means, but we can cause enough civilian casualties in the first ten minutes of this thing to make people think twice and. Then you just surge down, I think, the coasts or something. I don't know. I was reading about yeah. it. But it, like it's... the United States, the United States would step in and it would be over. And it would be like I, 
it would be like the second Gulf War all over again, essentially. Like, we would come in and basically kick their asses. Well, I don't think China then, would have their back even in a even in American, an American yeah. aggressive situation this time around. No way. Yeah, they wouldn't. Yeah, China wouldn't step in. China wouldn't dare step in. The only, the only reason China tolerates them is because they like having a buffer between American bases and China. They don't want a border with, you know, American tanks on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the thing that the United States would actually be more worried about is the occupation itself. Like, if we're going right. to do what we did in the second Gulf War, which is to, like, do some nation-building bullshit in um, in North, again, like, to try and do that, we probably should, like, not make the mistake of, like, kicking out, like, the ruling bureaucracy like we did in Iraq. Like kicking out the Baathists, all the Baathists from their positions of power after the Gulf, Second Gulf War was a massive mistake because they ended up joining ISIS, and that's and that, thing. that even could make it easier to. I mean, if if U.S. foreign policy planners were looking to be smart here, um, they would want to have. Uh, I mean, if you're going to have a regime to the south of China that is going to be at all accepted in its sort of existence by China, the best thing you can do is kind of convince them that it's not going to be a U.S. puppet state. So you'd want some continuity of government from A to B if you're, again, trying to keep China from getting involved in that sense. Yeah, this this would be easier than setting up an Iraqi state because a, a lot of South Koreans, at, at least, you know, they say there's one Korea, you know, like that the, there's one Korea, there might be two governments. But, you know, there's a sort of there's a longing for a greater Korean unity that I think would be very useful in a situation like that. I, I imagine extends to the north as well. I don't see why not. Like maybe this is Orientalism. Yeah, it's all about I'm with the south. Maybe this is Orientalism on my part, but I think the North Koreans, the North Korean citizenry is still like dedicated to Juche as an ideology and that sort of thing. To, to they are. A they are. There's actually um, there's a lot of evidence that that's true. Like a lot of people who escape North Korea come back because they are attached to it. That and, may be you know. that may be true, but whenever there's a rupture in in one of these. Uh, I don't know if it's fair to call it totalitarian situations, but you know, sure. Uh, Ethno state, basically. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah, it's a very specific kind of uh, state. There, there are a lot of people that are sort of walking the walk, and and if they got an opportunity to fight the regime, might actually take up arms. But it's hard to tell who's who. Um, I don't know, like just in an effort to not be Orientalist, I have to imagine that that impulse is there too. Like, because it was there in every, in East Germany, it was there in, in, uh, Stalinist Russia. It was there in all the satellite States. Also, yeah, like, yeah, I think, I think have, there like, kind of be an you know. emperor has no clothes situation to, to a regime fall or what have you that would impact that public support that the regime has. Yeah. I think we're I think we're overlooking the fact that North Korea really got it right. And that's why they've lasted this long. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's uncucked communism that stuck to the pure line and people respect them for it. And I, I just don't understand why why we don't understand. I mean 
I think you just all hate North Korea because you're Swamp white. Swamp side bet. We're juice now. <laughs> yeah, now we're the official juche tendency. Yeah. We'll, we'll all join DSA and create a... North Korea, <laughs> the least cucked communism. <laughs> yeah. Um, Swampside chat is officially associated with the Peasants People Party, or what the was the r- name of that r- weird r- white party? Oh my God! Yeah, what was like uphold? Uh, Kim- Jay, um, Jim yeah. Jones. Jim Jones. That's fucking nuts. Uphold Charles Manson, Juche thought. Can can uh, we have them on? Can we? Uh, did, can we talk to them? Because I are they real? I'm glad we do this wirelessly. Are, are they real? Um, like, are they for real? Because if that was a Vice article, you know, I, I I would question the quality of the journalism from it's Vice. One person. What I know is that it's one person living in a trailer. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's the rural people's party on Google, and you can find information on them. Because yeah. there's also and there's a weird history of like Nazbols and like third positionist fascist groups who are like you know, really into North Korea and have actually, like, been there and, like, talking to their government and stuff. Like, um... It's it's yeah. weird. The alt-right, yeah, but... actually, like, some of the weirder alt-right people are in the North Korea because it's an ethno-state and it's, you know, militaristic and, you know, isolationist and whatnot. It's got, it's got all the traits except they're not white. They're not white. But they're, they're ethnocentric, only... and that's something to aspire yeah. to. Yeah, yeah I, I, they're I... only honorary Aryans. Well, there's there's a kind of uh, you know multicultural longing for an eth- ethno state. Like you know, every culture should have its own ethno state. That kind of goes on in the alt right, so that they can even appreciate the Jewish ethno state. Yeah, well, the, yeah, and I mean, there's an extent to which that's just smokescreen. But I think that it, it sort of morphs into the real ideology too. Oh yeah, North Korea's actual ideology is very racist. It's, I mean, more so racialist. They really do believe that they they are a special race. You know, yeah, no, I just meant that. I think that I think often when the alt right pays respect to like, oh yes, hi, I'm. They'll go, I'm white. Um, you're black. You you deserve an ethno state too. And yeah. That's definitely the big. You topic. know what I mean? It's 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 smokescreen. You know. I mean, you get an ethno state. You get an ethno state. You get an ethno state. If we work together, people, we can return America to her God-given glory. America first. America first. Okay. Now here's what. This is what America is going to look like after the mandatory relocation is enforced. New York City will become known as. Little Israel. I figure all the Jews will love that. Is that okay, Ms. Shapiro? That's fine, Ken. Okay. Now down here is going to be your new Africa. See, your colors keep to that. They get up uh, in them. Ken, zone. I don't see a Virginia there. Oh, well, Chris, that was going to be part of Homo Arabia, which is over there. <laughs> you know, see, them, uh, them homos get to sodomizing. Yeah, I'd kind of like to be by the beach. Well... Okay, I guess I guess the colors can have Virginia too. We'll annex that. I uh, can, can, yeah, can. <laughs> Where's Home Arabia now? Well, Josie, I was gonna give it. Oh, I guess we could. And how about Mississippi? That's good. That's good. Ken, you had promised the West Coast. Well, yeah, but I, I'm gonna need that 
I'm going to need that for New New Delhi, for them damn Indians. Where will you go, Ken? Well, hell if I know, Regent. I mean, you know, I was going to be over here, but the gays got it, so I guess I'll annex this, move this over, make... He, I'll be here with the rest of the white race in New America. Will you keep in touch? Of course I will, Regent. You've been a dear friend, and I'll miss you terribly. But uh, it's, it is interesting how North Korea is so right-wing in its ideology, well, despite, you know, having some Marxist roots. Because um, there's a guy, Brian Myers, who wrote this book called The Cleanest Race. And he kind of, you know, he says that it's not really the Stalinist type of nationalism that runs in North Korea, but it's more like this fascistic um, national socialist type of, um, you know, ethnic nationalism that, you know, really runs through Korea. And that's one of the reasons why they want a, a greater unified Korea so much. I... I just want to talk about one more thing. I, I do want to talk about this Foxconn thing real quick. All right. Yeah. Let's. Let's. We. I can. I can stick around for. Uh. You know. A, a quicker conversation. Accelerate. Okay. Yeah. So the Foxconn. I mean, I just heard about this. This just came out. I think yes, a couple days ago. But it, it's kind of pissed me off. So I wanted to talk about it real quick. So, apparently, like Foxconn, of, suicide net protection fame has come to America or at least plans to they want to build a factory in Wisconsin and all they ask from the government is three billion dollars to do it billion billion yeah it it would be payment annual payments of 200 to 250 million dollars from the Wisconsin state government in order to get them in order to get them to uh, bring this factory in there that will create between 3,000 and 13,000 new jobs Aren't they like one of the like the tenth like biggest employers in the world or something like that? Something like that. Yeah, but the free market needs government funding. Eight dollar an hour jobs. Yeah. And this is like it, it, I was reading an article about it, and even Americans for Prosperity, which is uh, the Koch brothers thing, that actually came out against against this because they looked at like the jobs to money spent ratio and were just like, what the fuck. Wow. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and, and as we were really? talking, we talked about earlier, there's, um, with automation, it's going to be on the lower end of the job estimates. And they're talking about these jobs pay $8 an hour. Ooh, spicy. That's yeah, some I, job creation right there. And I mean, we're I can't understand. I mean, and the thing is, like, what drives me nuts about this is that there's going to be more ones that are be like, see, he's creating jobs. You know, it's like it. Oh yeah, they um, I there's all kinds of like these lists that Trump supporters make and post over Facebook that are like, this is all the jobs that Trump created. These are all the people that Trump deported. Like, this is all the stuff he's done. It's like this big long list of stupid shit. And Trump's actually behind Obama on deportations thus far. Yeah, but you know, they're still gonna like make it sound like he's you know the most amazing, you know guardian of the white man for the American Imperium or whatever. But, uh, God, it's, it's so stupid, this Foxconn thing. Well, it's yeah. like we're seeing, you know, we're seeing, not to sound like, you know, someone from a HuffPost or whatever, but, like, we're seeing, like, the third worldization of the United States, and we're seeing, you know, American labor, you know, increasingly, like, competing with, like, international labor on the world market. And this is what it looks like. It's local governors begging for shitty jobs in exchange for like fistfuls of money. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I think about like, how much of this deal is really just kind of um corruption. You know, how much of that money is you know, kind of just going into the coffers of a various uh, state. You oh, know? it's all it's all it's all it's all um it's all corruption. But what plays into it is it plays into this nostalgia for like the great industrial age of America. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, kind of every American politician played off that. Even Hillary, to a certain degree, they all, pretty much everyone says, we're going to bring jobs back from China. We're going to bring jobs, you know, good yeah. factory jobs. You know, that's kind of a constant thing in American politics, I've noticed. No matter I mean, what party. Yeah, the version is the Green, the green uh, New Deal or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, the jobs have been coming back. People have been getting jobs. It's just all the jobs are entirely shitty and they don't pay well. Like, that's the thing with the whole economic recovery. We haven't, like, really recovered in terms of, like, our working class and that sort of thing because the jobs are just awful. They don't pay well. No, like, you, can't, you can't live on, like, $8 an hour or work at a 40-hour week in a factory. Are you fucking insane? Like, it, it's like they're, they're going to have to build suicide nets here pretty soon. <laughs> like... Yeah, I think a lot of people who idealize, you know, 1950s America, like everyone has like a well-paying factory job, they they, they're not realizing is the reason those jobs paid good was because of unions and class struggle. You know, it wasn't because you know some great president, you know, was you know willing to um you know just make great deals for America. You know. Yeah, but it was was a very it was a very truncated form of class struggle that relied on a family wage and locked out people of color like it was a very and it was you know during the time of the marshall plan and um when europe's productive capacity was bombed to shit um, but even even the idea of having like a obviously the american iteration of social democracy was extra exclusionary as social democracy tends to be anyway even an idea of like class struggle is a prerequisite for any kind of you what we were talking about before any kind, even basic trade union consciousness and and i think that that wage floor being higher than it is now has to do with that trade union consciousness that existed sure. uh, to a much greater extent and so on sure sure it's Anyway, so I, but I mean, I, I don't, I don't disagree. Obviously, it's a very exclusionary sort of. Uh, it, it's not really game. social democracy. Like it, it's not. It, these aren't universal like welfare state benefits or something. Yeah, it's social democracy for white people. Anyway, this thing really just pissed me off, and I just want to talk about it for a second because it's like, and then at the same time you have, you know, like the whole UAW thing. They lost that Nissan election like by two to one margins, and it's you know. It's it's frustrating to see like sort of like Donald keeps saying that we don't even have basic trade union consciousness in this country anymore, and then people wonder you know why wages are so shitty and why you know their teeth are falling out but they can't afford to go to the dentist. Yeah, trade union consciousness yeah. would be an improvement. Oh yeah, it would definitely be an improvement, and yeah, but, that, but, yeah, the whole, but... the whole Nissan election was very disappointing too. Well, there are reasons to expect trade union consciousness to continue to be a problem and or just uh well the struggle to even establish anything like that and it's it's almost i don't know it's almost more believable to 
it's almost more believable that there would be some kind of political push towards a political like attempt to shore up you know some working class base and then to push for pro-union legislation as part of a greater progressive push you know yeah that, like that's, that's that's really what needs to happen because taft hartley like fucked over everything and so you would you would need to undo all that shit just to have like the basis for a real right. union movement but anyway uh yeah to the credit of the emerging socialist tendencies they do talk about that and yeah they are laying out something like a plausible strategy for addressing that that doesn't get caught yeah. in the catch-22 of we need to organize labor unions to fight for labor unions yeah yeah i think without leadership from socialists and communists labor unions just don't have any real direction or strategy because they're simply you know they're simply just insurance insert insurance agencies basically at that well, point well, they, have, they have a very direct uh direction <laughs> That's it for this week. Next week, we conclude our conversation with Nick from the IWW, talking about the organization's recent history, its current state, and its potentialities for the future. If you'd like to support the show, you can give us a like on Facebook, or leave us a good review on iTunes. If you have a question for us, or if you want to get a hold of us, message us on Facebook, or you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>